Welcome to the Catholic Cafe, where all that the Catholic Church believes and teaches is served fresh daily. So come on in and see what's on the menu today. Now, here's your host, Deacon Jeff Drzymski. And here we are once again, sitting in the luxurious corner booth of the Catholic Cafe. I'm Deacon Jeff, and I'm joined at the table... By my right-hand man, Mr. Tom Touchdown Dorian. There you go. Hello. Hey, hey, hey Jeff. Tom. I'm great. How are you? Uh, Tom, of course, you know, was a world-famous football player back in the day for Memphis State University. A legend in my own mind. That's right. Tom, did, they ever, did the team ever recuperate after you graduated? They, to this day, have not recuperated. Oh, I think they've hit a I'm, few bowl games in the last couple of years. They, well, you know, everybody's in charge of their own interpretation. <laughs> They're doing okay, That's I guess. right. But I will say we need to move on to our topic. I'm anxiously looking forward to that. And I can't decide what the topic is going to be. What is the blue plate special today, Deacon Jeff? Well, I can't choose. I either want to get scripture or I want to get tradition. I would think that you would get both if you could have both. Can you have both? I've always been taught that you can. Well, uh, I've heard that you can't. Well, you know, I was listening to a popular Bible show on the radio. And the uh, the host of that show, he likes to offer this analogy about riding horses. And he says, you you know, you can't ride two horses at one time. You either ride the scripture horse or you ride the tradition horse. Well, hopefully our guest today will help us figure that out. Well, let's bring in our guest. And it's Father Victor Sierra Mataro. And he's a priest for the Diocese of Memphis here in Tennessee. So, Father, have a seat in the luxurious corner booth and, uh, and join us. Welcome, Father. Glad to be here. Welcome, Glad Father. I'm going to get Ann to get you a, a cup of... How about decaf yeah. latte? Is that a correct? De- a latte decaf. Okay, That's we'll good. get Ann right on that. Do they have a decaf latte? I don't know, but we'll we'll think of something. <laughs> well, good. All right. Well, wonderful. So, Father, I tell you what. Here's where we ought to start. We have a lot of people listening. We hope, and we think that uh, we probably need to focus on: Can we have scripture and tradition? And maybe before we do that, should we just talk about what the church means by tradition? Where that comes from? Well, Jesus taught the apostles and he taught them many things but he never wrote a book and the apostles some of them wrote books but jesus taught them many things paul was not one of the 12 but he wrote most of the new testament and he did that from what he heard from others who taught him the the one thing that we really need to uh, understand is where did the bible come from you know bible came from that tradition it was people who were the leaders in the church who decided what books we call sacred scripture. But there were other things that were being done by the church in the beginning that weren't part of scripture. They were celebrating the Lord's Supper. They had prayers. They were meeting. There were rules and things that were going on, how to conduct the church. Those things were were being uh, decided by the apostles, and a lot of those things weren't put in the scriptures. One of the things that uh, I always like to look at is the fact that uh, the Lord's Day, Sunday, why do we worship on Sunday? The scripture says to worship on the Sabbath. But Christians worship today, for the most part, on the day of the Lord, what we call Sunday. It's alluded to one time that Paul was preaching on the first day of the week, But it never says in the scriptures that Christians are supposed to be worshiping on Sunday. 
That's something that most Christians do. That is a sacred tradition. So you're pointing out to uh, to our listeners that there are several things that were alluded to but never said outright, uh, never defined, you know, in Scripture to say, oh, you will worship on on Sunday. And I think it's also interesting that, you know, instead of the Sabbath, they worshiped on the Sabbath, but we don't even know that Sabbath means Saturday. So again, there's a tradition going even farther back, all the way back to Genesis, and where we're, we're finding out that tradition has always been a part of our worship. Yes, yes, it is. It's always been. Even the, our Hebrew ancestors had a sacred tradition. Things like how the uh, Passover was to be celebrated. Things that are not in the scriptures but are part of their sacred tradition. Uh, we, we find that that's there. The table of contents of the Bible. You know, where does that come from? You know, it was leaders of the church who decided that certain books would be included in the New Testament. There were other books that were written. One that was included many times with the scriptures was the uh, Epistle of Clement. But we do not claim that as part of sacred scripture. But uh, certain bishops, especially Augustine in the 4th century, uh, helped the church to decide what books would be included in the New Testament and even what books would be included in the Old Testament. Now, you, you point out, and rightfully so, that there were many, many books and letters to choose from. And you told us about Clement, but... Uh, there were also many uh, what we call the Gnostic Gospels, uh, you know, and then we had the Acts of Peter and the Gospel of Thomas. And we had, you know, just recently there has been a big fuss about the Gospel of Judas. So these fathers, this early church, the bishops, they had to get together and, and make some hard choices about what to put in and what to put out. Did they not? They certainly did. There's one thing that has always interested me. We find it in the Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians in the second chapter and in the 15th verse. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught by us, either by word of mouth or by letter. Well, Second Thessalonians was only the second book of the New Testament. The only part of the New Testament that existed at that point was Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. So what is he talking about? Hold firm to the traditions which you were taught by us, either by word of mouth or by letter. Well, I'll tell you, uh, that does raise my eyebrow here because I'm, I'm sitting there also looking at a couple of other scriptures. You know, I'm looking at Matthew chapter 15, and it says there, So for the sake of your tradition you have made void. The word of God, you hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And again, in Mark chapter seven, verse nine, and he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. And then the letter to the Colossians chapter two, verse eight, see to it that no one makes a prey of you by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the universe, and not according to Christ. So, wow, okay, does, is Scripture contradicting itself here? We see tradition condemned, which we hear about all the time, but then we also see tradition being heralded. 
Well, Jesus <clears throat> indicates to us some of those traditions that he's condemning. The Pharisees were dedicating wealth to the temple so that it couldn't be used to take care of their family members or their parents. So that's the kind of tradition, the ones that people were inventing all the way. Um, we, we would call those traditions with a little T, but what we're talking about in terms of tradition is with a big T. You know, it is part of what makes us Christian. It is part of what makes us believers in Jesus Christ. Uh, the church has had to teach for two millennia. The church has not been uh, just invented last week, but for two millennia the church has been teaching. And what makes us faithful Christians? What do we believe? It is that ongoing tradition. And I guess we should be clear that tradition here, you're defining, you're, you're further helping us with this big T, little t tradition the big T tradition being the apostolic traditions, those those traditions that are elemental parts of our faith that are leading us to forever live in eternity with God. They're, they're part of our, our salvation and understanding what God intended for us. That the big T traditions, this apostolic tradition, does not include, you know, uh, liturgical actions, what form of vestments the priest might wear, whether the priest is married or not married. These aren't the kind of traditions that are being taught there. Is that right? That's correct. That's correct. Those are traditions with a little t. Those are the things that are just kind of conveniences or things that have been decided on by the church as we, we move along through history. Things which give meaning but are not part of what is necessary. As, as part, we can we can change those things. Those things are changeable when they're changed as seen fit by the Holy Father, by the bishops, and we call them disciplines. That's right, because at times the church needs to be disciplined and and helping to understand where it needs to go and what direction. Because we have a living authority that's able to look at the situation with the church as it is right now and decide what do we need to do to elevate this particular issue and make it to the fore so that they. They can respond better as Christian people. And that's what those disciplines or those little T traditions are meant to do. That's right. We're, we're talking about Jesus chose the 12 and he sent them out. And he, sent, he had apostles and he had disciples and he sent them out. He says, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and teach all the nations, baptizing them. You know, so he, he wanted them to teach that that would be part of sacred tradition. And we've always defined sacred tradition as what the apostles taught in the first century. We cannot add to that. We cannot take away from that. That is what is sacred tradition. Wonderful, Father. And I just want to take this opportunity now. We're going we're gonna to go to a break. But before we do that, uh, I want to remind everyone that they can visit us on the web at www.thecatholiccafe.com. You can listen to or download this show as well as all our past shows, and you can set up podcasting if you're into that. We also have conveniently listed several different links to a variety of good Catholic resources on the web if you'd like to study some more about the Catholic Church. And we invite you to contact us on the web with questions, comments, or maybe even some topic suggestions. If you'd like to contact me directly, you can do so at Deacon Jeff at thecatholiccafe.com. And with that, Tom and I will be right back with Father Victor Sierra Mataro in just a moment. Stay with us.
Estrzemski, and this is another great moment in church history. When you think of saints, you often think of saintly qualities like patience, love, humility, and generosity. Not so with St. Jerome, a priest and doctor of the church born in the mid-4th century. On more than a few occasions, St. Jerome stood outside the church doors doing penance for his bad temper. While this was true, more than anything he was a staunch defender of the truth and an ardent lover of the Word of God. He felt that anyone who taught error was an enemy of God to be defeated with the swift and sure strokes of his powerful pen. St. Jerome was a scholar of great wisdom and understanding. He was a master of Latin, Greek, and Hebrew, and he spent many years in study in the celebrated centers of scholarship like Rome and Alexandria. He was a great student of sacred learning because he realized its vital role in obtaining the beatific vision. He once said, Let us learn upon earth those things which can call us to heaven. Sometimes feared for his veracity, but always known to be a genuine man of God, St. Jerome was respected by his peers. St. Augustine said of him, What Jerome does not know, no mortal man has ever known. He was very prolific in his writings. Above all, his scriptural writings have been without equal in the history of the church. St. Jerome is most remembered for his translation of the Bible into the common or vulgar language of the people, making it more accessible to the common people. Called the Vulgate, his vigilant and meticulous translation was very popular and became the standard version of the Bible for over a thousand years. Many who question the authority of the Church like to point to the fact that St. Jerome openly opposed the inclusion of the seven deuterocanonical books in the official canon of the Bible. While this is true, as he rarely held his opinions to himself, few people realize that ultimately St. Jerome recognized, upheld, and defended the authority of Holy Mother Church in defining the canon, and placed the books in their rightful place in the Bible. In 402 AD, St. Jerome wrote regarding this issue, What sin have I committed if I follow the judgment of the churches? At the end of his life, St. Jerome finally settled in Bethlehem, where he lived in a cave believed to be the birthplace of Jesus. He died there in 420 A.D. His feast day is September 30th. I'm Bess Trzymski, and this is another great moment in church history. Welcome back to the Catholic Cafe. Here's Deacon Jeff. And welcome back to the Catholic Cafe. I'm Deacon Jeff here with my buddy Tom Dorian. Tom, you doing all right? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Need another refill there, Deacon Jeff? No, I'm good. You good? How about you, Father? No, this place has great coffee. It's good, isn't it? It certainly is. We'll give Ann an extra tip today. (laughs) Wonderful. So, uh, Tom, do you know what to tell your friends now when they ask you about Scripture and tradition? I do. I do, but I will I will say this. During the break, we talked about this briefly. And, Father, I just need to ask you this question. And that is, is, you know, as Catholics, we're beaten over the head by our Protestant brothers and sisters about sola scriptura, uh, scripture alone. Why, why is that? Why are we constantly beat over the head with that? That actually didn't come up until the Protestant Reformation. The, the term sola scriptura comes from Martin Luther. And... He 
determine that from two scripture verses. The first one was John's Gospel, chapter 20, verse 31. Um, and the second one was 2 Timothy three, sixteen to 17. And uh, John said, uh, These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And in 2 Timothy it says, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be equipped, prepared for every good work. So based on those two Scriptures, that's all all we need is Scripture then, right? I mean, we look at that, and that that can that be interpreted to mean? That's what it sounds like. I already know the answer, but Father, help us out here. No, (laughs) I don't think we can interpret them that way. I think the first one is to say that you know, the, the Gospel of John was written to help us to believe in Jesus, to believe that he is the Christ, he is the Messiah. And the second one was written, that how do we, what do we use Scripture for? We use Scripture to teach people. And, and certainly it is important. But, you know, one of the things that, that we re- really have to understand is everybody having a Bible is quite, kind of recent. You know, for centuries, people couldn't read and books were written by hand. A monk might spend his whole lifetime just making one copy of the Bible. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so maybe the town would have one Bible or a big church would have its own Bible. But these things were passed on you know, verbally, word of mouth. You know, people were taught through stained glass windows. They were taught uh, the scripture stories. Well, most people, they didn't read. No, they did not. The vast majority of people didn't read. And so, uh, and just like, you know, Jesus in the temple, when he would read from the scrolls, they didn't pass out scrolls and have everyone have their own scroll. Obviously, <laughs> there were there was one set of scrolls, and uh, the presider would read from those scrolls and, and preach on that. And, and that's what has happened all through the centuries until they were able to inexpensively print Bibles for everyone. Part of the tradition, with a little t, is that the scriptures are read at the services of Christians because people could not read them in their own homes, and they they learn by hearing. And even the Bible says, you know, faith is passed on by hearing. Well, what about this? Uh, I, I have also heard uh, on, on occasion, you hear this uh, objection about Catholics and their Bibles about this concept that the the Catholic Church actually tried to keep the Bible away from its members, that that would be too much information for them and all the secrets would be let out. And so they actually chained their Bibles to the churches so that people couldn't get at them. You better believe they chained the Bible to their churches. So you're saying it's true. We have it on good word now. Father Victor has said that they actually chained the Bible, but I bet you there's more to that, Father. There certainly is. The uh, people who could not read, the, the book didn't mean anything to them. They might have taken it home and feed it to their cow. <laughs> so, If it was a particularly cold winter, I could see they wanted to do that. <laughs> yes. But at the same time, I know that to create this hand-copied Bible took a lot of money. It was you know, one or two or three years' wages of an average person to be able to have a copy of a Bible. That's correct. And... So people would steal them, and so they were were chained up. 
so that only people who needed to have access to them and people who could read it would have access to it. So it wasn't something that, you know, we just allowed anybody to take home and say, you take it home this week and it may never come back. So (laughs) they were chained up. And actually, the I think the opposite is actually true in terms of keeping the Bible from the people. The Catholic Church kept the Bible for the people. It protected the Bible all through the centuries, taking great care that the monks that copied these in these monasteries for hours upon end, the detail and the, uh, the guarantee of just the absolute closest translation, making sure that... Uh, all the I's were dotted and the T's were crossed, etc. The church actually made sure that these copies were genuine and good and preserved the scriptures from error as much as it possibly could. Yes, and the church sought to translate the scriptures into the languages of the people. The first book Bible that was done that way was uh, St. Jerome's Vulgate. It was put into the Latin, which was the common language of the people at the time. And he translated the scriptures from the Hebrew and the Greek into Latin so that the people could have access to the scriptures. So the church did want the people to have access to the scriptures. And if we go to the catechism, the church encourages its members to read scripture. Uh, In fact, here's some excerpts from that catechism. Hence, access to sacred scripture ought to be open wide to the Christian faithful. Therefore, the study of the sacred page should be the very soul of sacred theology. The church forcefully and specifically exhorts all the Christian faithful to learn the surpassing knowledge of Jesus Christ by frequent reading of the divine scriptures. Ignorance of the scriptures is ignorance of Christ. And that comes from where, Father? St. Jerome, who translated the scriptures back in the 4th century. Wonderful. So we understand that the church is actually who we have to thank for scriptures. Certainly. And it was in the fourth century that the bishops of the Catholic Church decided what books would be included in the New Testament. Yeah, and that's interesting to point out that starting with some early councils, now while these were not ecumenical councils, they were councils of the church. They were were gatherings, gatherings of the bishops to try to iron out all of the discrepancies in terms of what books to include and not. Um, and you can go back to the Council of Rome in 382 A.D., the Council of Hippo in 393 A.D., the Council of the First Council of Carthage in 397, and the Second Council of Carthage in 419. And one of the interesting things about this, Father, is that in all of those councils, all of the books, every single one of them that were ratified, that were put forth and said to be inspired works to go into the Bible, every single one of those books is the same exact list that we have today. That's correct. The table of contents. We go back to what is sacred tradition. The table of contents of the Bible is sacred tradition. But but you will see occasionally, or you will hear occasionally, a, a Protestant, again, brother or sister, say that we have extra books or extra verses in the Bible. Why is that? The church adopted the Greek version of the Old Testament, which contained those books. Now, Hebrew Bibles in the first century, there was no canon of sacred scripture for the Old Testament. That was only decided at the Council of Jamnia in the year 79 AD, after the temple was destroyed, the rabbis got together 
and decided what we call today rabbinic Judaism. And they decided that books that were not written originally in Hebrew would not be part of the canon of the Hebrew Bible. So that's about seven books that were included in the Greek version. Now, things like Hanukkah, that we know that the Jewish people celebrate about the same time of Christmas as, as we celebrate Christmas. Um, where do we find that in the Old Testament? It's the Feast of the Dedication. That's in the book of Maccabees. It also, in the Gospel of John, it says it was winter and Jesus was in Jerusalem for the Feast of the Dedication. So it was a Jewish feast that was celebrated. So the Catholic Church in the 4th century adopted because it was used by the apostles and it is quoted 350 times in the New Testament. Well, the Old Testament is quoted, I think, some 350 some odd times. That's correct. And of those, 300 or so are directly direct quotes from the Septuagint, which That's tells correct. us that all of the apostles, the sacred writers of Scripture, and those examples you gave of Jesus being in the temple on the Feast of the Dedication, being a good Jew... You know, obviously, he was reading Maccabees and following through with Jewish tradition and, and uh, showing up in the temple at the appropriate time. You know, there was something interesting in 19, uh, I think it was 49, when the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls were found. Um, we found some Hebrew originals of those books that were... Uh, so, it's interesting that uh, maybe they were some Hebrew originals. In fact, I think, if I'm not mistaken, I think they found Hebrew originals for all but one of the deuterocanonical books. That's so correct. that kind of throws that argument out the window, That's but we're not arguing here. No, we're not. We're just putting forth <laughs> the Catholic case. As and it drinking were. coffee. That's exactly right. <laughs> well, Father, thank you so much for contributing to our conversation here today. And it's certainly been enlightening for me. And Tom, what do you think? Oh, absolutely. Thank you, Father. I'm uh, I'm glad you enjoyed the coffee, it too, by the way. It was well, my pleasure. Well, obviously, we serve only the best coffee here at the Catholic Absolutely. Cafe. Absolutely. I'm coming back. Good <laughs> deal. We would love to have you back. Thank you so much. Uh, and the luxurious corner booth will not be the same without you, so we, we will keep your seat warm. But what I'd like to do is I'd like to end in prayer as we as we always do here at the Catholic Cafe. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, help us to follow the way of your Son, Jesus, sent to heal the contrite sent to call sinners, and destined to plead on our behalf at your right hand. Thank you for this opportunity to explore all that you have revealed to us, whether written as sacred scripture or passed on by word of mouth of the apostles and their successors. Send your Holy Spirit that we might be granted the wisdom to discern your eternal truths, which are surrounded by the thorns of this fallen world. We ask you to grant this through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. 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 Thanks for listening to The Catholic Cafe. If you'd like to contact Deacon Jeff, send an email to deaconjeff at thecatholiccafe.com. The Catholic Cafe is brought to you by the Order of Malta Federal Association and is broadcast with ecclesial permission from J. Terry Stive, Bishop of Memphis in Tennessee. Join us again at the Catholic Cafe. There's always room for one more at our table.